Hello, my name is Donna Newman, and I'm a partner in the Finance Litigation Group at Stevenson Harwood. Welcome to the first in our Autumn 2020 series of four short podcasts, in which we take a bite-sized look at some key topics that have emerged from court or regulatory decisions over the last year. In this episode, Jeremy Livingston, a senior associate in our Finance Litigation Group, will focus on two recent decisions concerning ISDA Master Agreements. Hello, my name is Jeremy Livingston. I'm going to talk about two recent decisions concerning the court's approach to interpreting some of the standard terms contained within the ISDA documentation. The first case I'm going to consider relates to the Commercial Court's guidance on the interpretation of the ISDA Master Agreement and 2000 definitions. The case is called Alfred Street Properties Limited and the National Asset Management Agency, which I shall refer to simply as the agency. Alfred Street, a Northern Irish property developer, entered into five extendable interest rate swaps with the agency, the statutory corporation created by the Irish government in response to the 2008 global financial crisis, which acquired loans and financial instruments from various financial institutions. The swaps were subject to confirmations expressly incorporating the 2000 ISDA definitions and were governed by the 1992 ISDA Master Agreement. The confirmations gave the agency the option to extend the swaps at an increased fixed rate, provided the terms and conditions of the options were fulfilled. The agency exercised the options to extend, and Alfred Street made quarterly payments at the increased fixed rate, as if those options had been extended on their terms. However, a year after the term of the extended swaps had expired, Alfred Street claimed that the exercise of the options had been invalid and sought restitution. The basis of Alfred Street claim was twofold. First, Alfred Street claimed that notification of the exercise of the options by telephone was invalid, that although the ISDA definitions allowed notification by telephone, pursuant to section 12.2, this section was not engaged because the confirmations did not expressly identify, using capitalised terms, that the transactions were options transactions or swaptions. Second, Alfred Street alleged that the agency's agent did not in fact exercise the options on the telephone call, but simply indicated the agency's intention to exercise the options. The commercial court rejected Alfred Street's claim and determined that the agency was entitled to exercise the options by telephone. The court's reasons were as follows. A failure to use the capitalised term definitions did not invalidate the notification by telephone under section 12.2. Whilst ISDA documents should be construed strictly in order to provide certainty for the parties, where necessary, they should be interpreted under the general rules of contractual interpretation. On the court's analysis, therefore, the ISDA definitions only require the transactions to be clearly identified as an option, transaction or swaption. They do not require the use of precise capitalised terms. In any event, even if the court was wrong in its analysis, The Section 12.2 procedure had been incorporated into the confirmations because the options and their terms were structured by reference to terms defined in Section 12 of the ISDA definitions. As regards Alfred Street's contention that the telephone conversation with the agency's agent was only a notice of intention to exercise, rather than an actual exercise of the options, the court held that the test to be applied was an objective test that took into account the actual content of the telephone call which was recorded, together with the factual and commercial context of the need to exercise the options within a specified time limit. On this basis, the court concluded that the options had been exercised on the telephone call. 
Finally, Lord Justice Phillips noted that Alfred Street's contention that the notices were defective was remarkably opportunistic and unattractive, given that Alfred Street had the benefit of the protection of the extended swaps and the fulfilment of its contractual requirement to hedge 50% of its borrowing from the agency. The judge stated that the belated assertion of invalidity was a classic case of a party claiming to have the benefit of a one-way bet, seeking the return of its stake when the bet was lost, and that this was therefore a clear case where the doctrine of estoppel by convention applies with full force, and it was plainly unconscionable for Alfred Street to assert the invalidity of the extensions of the swaps. This case serves as a useful reminder to parties, particularly in these uncertain economic climes, of the importance of ensuring that notice clauses under ISDA documentation and other contracts are properly and carefully drafted and closely complied with. If there are shortcomings in the notice, the receiving party should raise any objections with the serving party promptly, as the courts may well not entertain claims of this nature at a later date. Furthermore, while standard documents such as an ISDA master agreement will be interpreted strictly so as to promote certainty, the courts will not find attractive, overly pedantic constructions which are inconsistent with what was, objectively speaking, the commercial bargain reached by the parties. This conclusion is supported in the second case I'm going to consider, which was also before Lord Justice Phillips, although this time in the Court of Appeal. The case is called CFH Clearing Limited, CFH, and Merrill Lynch International, MLI. In this case, the Court of Appeal held that a clause in MLI's terms and conditions did not constitute an express recognition that the term market practice was incorporated into the transactions between the parties and therefore amending the contract constituted by an ISDA master agreement and the confirmations. By way of background, on the 15th of January 2015, the parties entered into a series of foreign exchange transactions involving Swiss francs. The transactions were spot FX transactions, documented by an ISDA master agreement and electronic confirmation. On the day in question, the Swiss National Bank unexpectedly depegged the Swiss franc from the euro, which caused the price of the two currencies to fluctuate widely over the course of that day. The turbulence in the market resulted in the average price of CFH and set 27 trades with MLI falling to 0.18. Later the same day, EBS one of the principal FX trading platforms, declared an official low of Euro-Swiss franc at 0.85. The trades between MLI and CFH had not taken place via the EBS platform. CFH asserted that the market practice in this situation was for MLI to increase the price of the trades to 0.85, and that MLI was legally obliged to act in accordance with this alleged market practice. As a gesture of goodwill, MLI subsequently reprised its 27 trades with CFH to 0.75, which CFH accepted, albeit under protest. Eventually, CFH brought a claim in the commercial court that MLI should compensate it for the difference between the price of 0.75 and the price it thought it should have had, i.e. 0.85. It argued that MLI was under a legal obligation to act in accordance with this alleged market practice on the basis of one or more of 1. An alleged express or implied contractual term as to market practice. 2. An alleged contractual term as to best execution. 3. A duty to avoid a conflict of interest and to treat CFH fairly. And or 4. A tortious duty to take reasonable care to ensure that trades were priced correctly. CFH's claim was largely predicated on a clause in MLI's terms and conditions which stated that 
all transactions are subject to all applicable laws, rules, regulations, howsoever applying, and where relevant, the market practice of any exchange, market, trading venue, and or any clearinghouse, and including the FSA rules. However, MLI's terms and conditions also contained a clause expressly confirming that the FSA rules, now the FCA, were not incorporated. The Commercial Court granted summary judgment in favour of MLI on the entirety of CFH's claim. The court found that MLI had not been under the obligation asserted by CFH and, as such, had not been obliged to increase the price. However, the Court of Appeal granted CFH permission to appeal in relation to its case that MLI was under an express contractual obligation, pursuant to the aforementioned clause in MLI's terms and conditions, to comply with market practice and therefore retrospectively to reprice the 27 trades to the EBS price of 0.85. In a judgment given by Lord Justice Phillips, with which the other Lord Justices agreed, the Court of Appeal dismissed CFH's appeal and held that there was no arguable basis for finding that the parties had agreed to incorporate market practice as an express term of the detailed contractual regime adopted. Accordingly, MLI had not been under any obligation, as asserted by CFH, to reprice the 27 trades to the EBS price of 0.85. First and foremost, MLI's terms and conditions stated at the very outset that their application was subject to documentation relating to a specific transaction or transactions. The judge considered that the meaning of that clause could not be clearer. Notwithstanding anything in MLI's terms and conditions, the 27 trades remained governed by the terms of the ISDA Master Agreement. Accordingly, it followed that CFH's contention that market practice was incorporated into the 27 trades, overriding the express pricing and settlement provisions of the ISDA Master Agreement, failed on the basis of the express scope of MLI's terms and conditions as set out in their preamble. The judge supported this conclusion by assessing the specific wording of the clause in MLI's terms and conditions. The judge held as follows. 1. A clause containing the words subject to does not necessarily result in incorporation. Each clause containing such words must be considered in its specific context. In this case, the list of matters to which transactions were subject was lengthy and diverse, such that incorporation of them all would have given rise to huge uncertainty and rendered transactions unworkable. 2. In the present case, the words subject to related to matters which were collectively defined as applicable rules, including market practice and the FSA rules. However, a separate clause in MLI's terms and conditions expressly provided that the FSA rules shall not be incorporated, which made it clear that at least some of the applicable rules were not incorporated, thus undermining CFH's argument that the intention of the word subject to was to affect incorporation. 3. The clause in MLI's terms and conditions could simply have provided that market practice was incorporated, but that term was qualified by reference to exchanges, markets, trading venues, and or clearinghouse. Accordingly, the inclusion of the word market in the present case was plainly intended to cover specific markets, such as the EBS platform, and not to include the FX market in the broadest sense. 4. The alleged market practice was far too vague and uncertain to be incorporated as a contractual term. The result of this case continues the present approach of the courts to the interpretation of ISDA master agreements and other detailed industry standard documentation. The court will interpret the documents quite literally and in accordance with the plain meaning of the words in order to give parties using these documents greater certainty about their meaning. Accordingly, there is very little scope for creative interpretation of expressed terms or implying additional terms, 
particularly where a party is trying to manipulate the meaning of the contract in order to claim compensation for loss arising from volatile market activity.